I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And you're married. That is correct. I'm, I'm married, and so are you. We don't usually include our like marital status along with our introductions, like Mr. Terrell. Um, uh, but this week we're making an exception. Actually, does Mr. doesn't have anything to do with marriage? No, status, look at that male privilege. Look That's at, what we're going to be talking about. Look at that male about. privilege. Uh, yep. And there you go. so um, we are talking about this because this week we're talking about how every, behind every great writer, there's a wife. Uh, and these wives, well, okay. <laughs> I'll go with that. These wives are the stuff of legend, and if they're not, they should be. So many canonized writers had wives who took care of the little things so they could spend their energy expressing their alleged genius. Vera Nabokov, very famous as an example of that. So, I mean, we're talking about doing the laundry and other kinds of domestic labor, what I think of as life administration, which I personally hate a lot. Um, but many of these women also had huge literary influences on their partners, um, encouraging, editing, typing, curating, and other editorial tasks. And sometimes they were paying attention to these things at the expense of their own artistic lives. And I don't think this is entirely a thing of the past, um, do you? Well, that's just one of the things I hope we're going to discuss with today's guest, Carmela Chiraru. Carmela Chiraru is the author of the new book, The Lives of the Wives. She is also the author of the critically acclaimed book, Nom de Plume, a Secret History of Pseudonyms by Har from Harper. Her anthologies include First Loves, Poets Introduced the Essential Poems that Captivated and Inspired Them, and several volumes in the Everman's Library Pocket Poets series. She has been interviewed on the Today Show and by newspapers and radio stations internationally, and you can follow her on Twitter, if you're still on Twitter, we are, uh, at Carmela the Twit. Carmela, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much, Whitney. And so, again, yeah, I'm really happy to be here. 
Well, we're thrilled to have you. Basically, since I heard about your book, I've been like, we got to talk to Carmela about this book. Um, such an interesting concept. Um, and it's organized around five couples and their marriages. And you wrote in the introduction that you were purposely avoiding writing about the living for obvious reasons. And then the most famous literary what wives. What reasons are those, Suki? What are the obvious reasons well, that you that would those avoid would, the living? That I those don't are, understand. That those are, still, those are still evolving stories. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, honestly, when I was considering living writers, there's one couple who was on my list and they have since divorced. So that's one, uh, you know, one reason right there. And, and also, I suppose, litigation. Ah, <laughs> okay. Maybe we'll come back to some of these process questions. Um, Suki's only but, been married for less than a year, but she'll volunteer <laughs> to have you write uh, about her marriage if you want. Okay, so you have avoided the living, the most famous literary wives, and we've already uh, invoked Vera Nabokov. Um, and then also women who were married to famous misogynists like Hemingway. Um, and the couples you chose are extremely interesting and varied. And I wonder if you can just give us a brief overview of the five pairs that you did pick. Yeah, thank you. I mean, there was a little bit of, uh, I suppose, chance and luck in terms of how I landed on these five. I had more, I even wrote additional chapters, but, you know, it was hard, frankly, to find material on the wives a lot of the time, you know, there were, I thought I had these great couples, and I was really excited, and I just couldn't find enough. And that's part of my point in writing this book is that, you know, the dearth of material around women or the way they've been mis miscategorized in history. Um, but, you know, the five I landed on, I think, proved to be a kind of interesting, uh, interesting taken together. Um, I wrote about Una Truebridge and Radcliffe Hall. They're the only same sex couple in the book. Um, and they were interesting to me. They were such characters. You know, they were radical for their time and they lived very openly in, you know, early 20th century, very boldly as a couple. And uh, they were so transgressive in their style of dress. And this just shows how complicated people are. You know, they were kind of, um, I, I would say, uh, their views around women were very offensive. You know, they were not in favor of women's rights. Uh, Radcliffe Hall did not like to deal with women in, in business dealings, like preferred dealing with men. They were anti-Semitic, you know, so they, these were complicated people. They were politically very conservative and yet they're the, the same sex couple of the books. So they sort of, I think, challenged my notions of what I would have expected about them. Um, and, and, you know, like the other wives in the book, Una was a very accomplished person and had a lot of promise as an artist and kind of gave all of that up to be the wife. And, and by that, you know, I mean, kind of in the stereotypical sense of one who really is the caregiver and nurturer and really serves the genius of, of the partner. And, and the other couples I chose, uh, you know, Elsa Morante, the Italian writer and Alberto Moravia, um, they were, I'd say, different than the other uh, couples in the sense that there was not a lot of love or passion between them, at least romantically, but intellectually, there certainly was. And they kind of fed each other creatively in, in atypical ways. Um, and it was a very difficult marriage where in this case, the wife was sort of the more abusive <laughs> spouse, you know, she was a real character with a with a temper. Um, but you know, that marriage functioned for a while anyway, uh, for the two decades. And, um, and then I wrote about Elaine Dundee, the American writer, Dud Avocado, her novel was reissued by New York Review of Books. So she's gotten more attention in recent years. And she was married to the British theater critic, Kenneth Tynan, uh, who I'd say was one of the worst <laughs> spouses in, in my book. It's hard to choose a winner, but he's, he's right up there. He's really cruel 
Um, and like Roald Dahl, who I also write about, I write about, I think kind of uh, psychopathic in his narcissism. Um, and I don't use that term lightly. Um, and uh, I wrote about um, Elizabeth Jane Howard, who was married to Martin Amos's father, Kingsley Amos. And, um, you know, she was someone who had kind of a weakness for married men, and he was no exception, and they ended up together. And I think, um, you know, she had a lot of hope for someone uh, someone who would support her writing as a fellow writer, but it really proved to not be the case. She did everything for him and he gave her nothing back in terms of her creative career. Um, and then finally, uh, again, Roald Dahl and Patricia Neal. And um, we talked about this a little bit before our conversation, Sugi, but, you know, he was someone who was not known before their marriage. He was kind of a nobody. And when they got married, the New York Times headline that I found um, in the archives was Patricia Neal marries writer. Um, and he didn't like that at all, but, you know, <laughs> so, so I think, um, it was interesting, you know, as I, as I got deeper into the research and then I stepped back to see how these stories came together in surprising ways and, and finding a lot of through lines um, among the stories as well. So as you note <clears throat> in your introduction, marriage is a historically unequal institution. And as you Right there, it was essentially set up as so that the personhood of the wife was subsumed by the husband and she became his property. And the legacy of this structure plays out in essentially every professional sphere. So what's different or particular about writing? How did you decide on this as a category of literary history that you wanted to cover? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I did think about writing about artists. We know there are many famous couples throughout history that could have been written about, you know, Picasso and his partners or Jackson Pollock and Lee Krasner, it goes on and on. But ultimately, I thought the book needed focus and some kind of organizing principle. Um, to answer your question, Whitney, you're both writers. So you know, <laughs> you know what is required uh, to, to write a book. It's extremely difficult physically, emotionally, psychologically to write a book. And it, it just I do think it requires a certain kind of ruthlessness. And so while these issues, I think, are relatable, sadly, across many different professions, there's something about the act of writing, which is by definition solitary and really it requires such intense focus. Um, you know, it's it's just uh, I think it amplifies the issues that may be present in any long term relationship, you know, but. I also mentioned in my introduction, you know, what do you do when one one partner declares themselves the more valuable half of the marriage? And sometimes that's what writers do. They claim space and then sort of leave everything else for the other person to sort of clean up or deal with. And that's what the wives in my book certainly, certainly dealt with. So um, I, I thought, you know, there were also among these writers anyway, a lot of um, alcoholism and infidelity and really traumatic childhoods that kind of fed into the work and played out in the marriage. So I thought all of that made for very rich and interesting stories. I mean, one thing you noted that I, that gender roles still persist, you know, and so <clears throat> a lot of the female writers that you quote in the book, and you also mentioned the phrase that people will never say female, never say male writer, they only say female writer. So there I am doing that. Um, however, uh, talk about how like, well, I'm trying to write, but I still have to cook. And I'm still supposed to make the food and take care of the kids. And that has been my assigned role. And that ends up taking up a lot of time. Um, you know, so that seems to complicate the issue here as well. Yeah, it really does. I mean, you know, even in the instances in which, you know, the women were also writing, I mean, you know, it was so sad that, you know, 
some of these women like Elaine Dundee, Kenneth Tynan claimed a study with a door that he could shut and he could smoke dozens of cigarettes a day. And she was, you know, crouched on the floor with her, you know, typewriter on her knees and her back hurt. And so she was trying to carve out her writing career, but didn't even have, you know, room of one's own, as, as Wolf put it. So I think it's just, you know, very, very difficult. And, and, and sadly, I don't think it's, changed a lot. Uh, I mean, you what know, was that my, phrase that Virginia Woolf uses that you, that you quote the angel, angel in the house. In the house. Okay. Yeah. Like that, that mythic, the idea of what you're supposed to be as a woman in a household, right. That she had to banish in some way. Yeah. She said she had to kill her. She had to murder her. She uses very I violent to describe what I love. I mean, I just thought it was so powerful that. So you like wow. the idea of murdering the angel in the house. <laughs> bloodthirsty. Well, I think that there's there's this way that both the writer and the wife's in history, they're both figures that can set themselves up as martyrs. You can only have one martyr in a house. Right. You know, I mean, and it's emotionally exhausting to have to do that. And and I just think I, I love that essay. I really recommend it, by the way. And, I, you know, the the um, she describes having to get rid of that part of herself, the someone who wants to apologize and please others, you know, talking about killing it. And I thought that was incredibly powerful and also just heartbreaking. And, you know, the fact that in my introduction, I quote Ann Patchett, who's a massively best-selling author, and she's she doesn't even have children, but she's like, when do I get to stop doing the laundry, making the dinner, making the beds? And, you know, she's doing that. And, and so um, I, I, I'm not trying to answer any questions in my book, but I'm trying to ask them why is why is this still relevant? Uh, you know, and and how how do we change it? I don't know the answer. I mean, maybe that has to play out in individual ways, but cer certainly as a society and a culture, something is allowing this to go on. And I also quote Zadie Smith, who's like, you know, it's this is this is the norm. This is our default. This is where men and marriages get to claim that space, and it's considered theirs to take, whereas women who want creative careers have to sort of apologize for it, um, especially around childcare, I think. Yeah, it seems to me like a lot of it is controlling who gets interrupted also. Um, because the other thing that's particular to writing, I think, is that at least for me, um, and I think I've had to let this go um, in various ways as I've gotten older, but the idea of an uninterrupted chunk of time um, is such a privilege. Um, so if there is an emergency or if someone, a kid, a dog, um, someone working in the house needs something, who is the person who's going to respond? Uh, and then so much of so much of the work of the wives you describe in the book is is a kind of guardianship of the clock um, and of the space, which was just, I mean, like Una Trowbridge is described as like kind of, you know, keeping keeping everyone away from the genius. And I couldn't help but think of as a kid, I remember being so fascinated by Marie and Pierre Curie. Um, as like a as like an example of like this um, romantic and professional partnership, and then sort of realizing in comparison to so many other partnerships that they were so unusual. Um, yeah, because we all know if we didn't grow up with it ourselves, we all know the phrase from TV shows. You know, don't interrupt your father, right? We never have heard don't interrupt your mother. I mean, I've never heard that uttered by anyone. So um, you know, it's 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 interesting and. 
it's, uh, you know, I, I was just thinking about in the Roald Dahl chapter, I mentioned, <laughs> do you remember that, you know, he has his writing hut and she has to ring the bell, you know, like yeah. once, I forget what it was, like once means that someone is there to see him, you know, but she had to kind of ask permission even to interrupt him with this ringing of the bell, which is crazy. And, and women don't seem to get that for the most part. Um, that said, I do know a few people in my own life where both House of the couple are artists, but uh, and and equally supportive and nurturing, but it's so rare. Um, and one thing I wanted to mention is that I haven't told many people about the book, but when I have, I really get uh, bombarded with a lot of personal information about people's marriages. So I just try to listen. I got, yeah, I've gotten quite an earful about affairs and other kinds of things that oh I. God like oh I and the one woman said I'd really appreciate it if you could keep giving me advice and helping me and I was like I can't do that I just wrote this book but clearly it brings out a lot of emotional pain for some people and one of my friends told me something that was really heartbreaking she said um she she was giving a speech uh and it was a quite quite a big deal for her career and she wanted to read the speech to her husband and he said, oh, it's 20 minutes long. I, I don't have time for that. And she said that as she was working on the speech, he really be behaved like a child. He was so angry. And he said, it's taking attention away from me, you know, and um, she's in the process of a divorce. But, you know, I thought that was so sad that someone would behave that way and not show support for a big moment in her career. So it really does play out today all the time. And, you know, what can we say about that? But uh, I think the book, I hope, will make people think about these kinds of things and how do we claim the space that we need for the things we want to do. So it seems like there's been a lot of research and conversation about and, and also assumptions about the notion that same-sex couples might do better with this sort of thing. But I want to go back to Una Trowbridge and Radcliffe Hall because, as you mentioned, they're politically and socially conservative and they did not have an equal distribution of of domestic labor. And they're also among the five couples you wrote about, the only one um, that endured. And so I'm curious, after reading about all of these couples, and, and you know, in your intro, you, you reference many, many other couples beyond the five that you wrote about, but just how do you think about the value of enduring marriage in this context? What is the value of lastingness? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a complicated one to answer, because just because something endures doesn't mean that both partners are satisfied, right? It's a choice that they've made, they're going to stay together. Um, however, what I would say is that they did function as a unit. They really were this funny, you know, I talk about how they, you know, they got into dog breeding and they were, you know, the toast of the town at all these dog breeding events. I mean, they were so, they were so funny. Um, and, and, and even though Radcliffe Hall had affairs, you know, uh, just like a lot of the husbands in the book, they were ultimately kind of soulmates and they really loved each other and couldn't live without each other. So I think Una Trubridge made this decision, like I, I'm hers forever and that's it, you know, and, and she just committed to that no matter what. And I think it's interesting that she had been married to a man and was really depressed and at times suicidal and didn't want that role. She wanted to, you know, she was a translator and an artist and she was so intelligent and she wanted to be doing that stuff and he wouldn't let her. But somehow she loved Radcliffe Hall in a way that made her want to be the wife and give up everything and be, her, you know, agent, manager, gatekeeper, you know, all of these things. And was, I think, at some level satisfied. Like, I think she took what I, as I understood it, I felt that she took real pride in being the, 
the person with the proximity to this genius, you know, in her mind. So I think, yeah, I think she was for the, I, who knows, but I think she was satisfied, even though she had a lot of pain uh, from, from the relationship, it, you know, she knew that she was the person who Radcliffe Hall needed the most and valued the most. And, um, and so she got something out of it. And even in, you know, some of these marriages went on for decades before they collapsed. And I think both people got something out of it, even in a dysfunctional relationship, you know, there's something seductive about proximity to power or wealth or fame. Um, and, you know, I, you know, if, if you think about, uh, you know, Elaine Dundee, she was proud that everyone gathered around Kenneth Tynan when they were at a party, you know, he was just the center of attention. And she just she really that gave her something. So, um, yeah, I think it's 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 a tough question to answer. Sometimes they endured when they shouldn't have. It takes a lot of courage to leave. Uh, so um, it's it's tough. But I think that. Uh, yeah, anyway, it's, it's it's tough to answer, but interesting to think about. So, I mean, as you mentioned, uh, there is a lot of information about affairs and, you know, sex, to put it bluntly, in the in these stories. Um, but of course, the as we said, the writers are not living, so you can ask them directly about these things. Uh, you talk about, you know, decode when Una has a diary that's all about sex. You talk about her burning two years of her diaries. Um, did you know how did you get some of this information, and how did your historical research work to get this, you know, these sort of level of personal details uh, about these people's lives and marriages? Yeah, uh, well, um, her archive, I believe, is at the Harry Ransom Center in Austin, which was uh, closed to the public in the in the pandemic. And may, I'm not sure what their rules are now, but I, I had to, um, you know, I didn't have firsthand access to the diary. So I found uh, biographies of her, scholarly articles, um, biographies of Radcliffe Hall, uh, stories of them as a couple. And I found those diary excerpts. And they were, you know, they were very poignant. And in some some cases, she was venting privately. You know, she was letting her rage out. But for the most part, she just kind of buried it. It was like, I'm a happy wife, you know, type thing. So um, I'd say that uh, it was a ton of research. You know, it was um, it was yeah, biographies, memoirs, letters, diaries of other writers that I read, like Kenneth Tynan's diaries. I got. Um, and then I found um, original uh, interviews from, you know, 50 years ago from newspapers um, online. So just gathering a, a vast amount of material. And it was quite challenging at times to keep all of these facts and dates and things in my head at once. It was a it, talk about, you know, needing the, the space to, to write. It was just it took intense concentration. And then there were some interesting crossovers among the couples, you know, that for instance, Elizabeth Jane Howard had an affair with Kenneth Tynan. You know, there was some crossover. <laughs> it was like a lot to keep track of uh, who was cheating with well, there's, whom. In following up on that stuff, I, I thought I had two interesting thoughts. I, I, I mean, I had a lot of interesting thoughts, but I had some thoughts that I wanted to talk to you about. Number one is, and I thought, Atsugi, I'd like interesting your comments on this. Writing is such a weird profession because how many other professions are it where everyone is allowed to know what you make and it gets publicly reported and people gossip about it? And two, whoever you ever had sex with is going to eventually appear in someone's book. And that is not true of most people. That's if you're a doctor, you cannot be guaranteed that someone like you is going to come along and write in a book about you saying all the people, all the things you did, good and bad, in bed. Um, I just, it's just a weird thing that we accept about writers as public people. I wonder why that is. Uh, 
Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. And also the fact that you don't always know, I mean, I'd love for you both to talk about this as fiction writers. You don't always quite know where an idea comes from. Like, you know, this happened, but it's not, I under, it took me a while to understand when writers talk about, well, it's emotionally true, but it didn't actually happen. You know, it's complicated. We don't know where things come from. There's kind of a blender of things that happen, you know, in our heads and we just take bits and pieces from it. So uh, it is such a mysterious process. And the other thing that I thought of when I was reading this is that, you know, the lives are very, very complicated romantically. And I thought, well, is that a writer thing or is that a human thing? And most people don't have their relationships written about with this level of detail. And so that most people that, that like humanity's way of dealing with marriage is far more complicated than people say or imagine it to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, have you how have you all thought about that as fiction writers? Has that come up for you? both of you? Well, I wondered a little bit. Um, these people all seem to like live their lives at, like volume 12, you know, out of 10, you know, the sort of and and I and I wondered, right, like, I mean, certainly as a fiction writer, when I have options in my head, I, I personally am generally not choosing the character that is living the quiet life. There are fiction writers who do that beautifully. I'm probably not one of them. And so I wondered, you know, they're to what extent these couples are the ones also selected for drama for like good e examples of certain themes um, for the, the unusual crossover um, for like their, you know, Patricia Neal is in, was an actress um, for their, their participation in other artistic professions to underline certain themes that you observed in your larger research. Cause I'm certainly, I don't know, I'm cherry picking in my imagination. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, even though I kind of vaguely knew the outlines of most of these stories, I was shocked by the amount of drama and just pure insanity. It was like, oh, these stories are so so rich in ways I hadn't expected. You know, if you think about Kenneth Tynan, get, you know, stripping naked and standing on the windowsill and threatening to commit suicide, and Elaine Dundee say, you know, go ahead and jump, I don't care. You know, they were so it's like being trapped in, you know, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Like in every story, it was just like so grim. Um, but yeah, just a lot of drama that just happened to make for good stories. And I think, um, I don't know. I mean, I think when you're writing, especially fiction, you're being pushed to the extreme, you know, often to points of anguish. And I, I feel like some of these people were acting out in their marriages, just the suffering that they were having to go through in their writing. It was just coming out the cruelty and mm. the anxiety and the insecurity in these relationships. And that's just my speculation, but you know, writing is really hard. And I had empathy for these people, um, mostly, because it's just, it's, it's, it's really tough, you know, and I couldn't yeah. judge them because y yes, it's just, it's also complicated to unpack, you know, and that's an interesting theory. Yeah, but I think also, um, maybe you could speak to this as well. I think if you start judging and imposing your assumptions and beliefs all then the story gets smaller and constricted and it's not maybe as expansive or interesting as it could be so I had to sort of hold back I made sort of I think little digs at what I hope were appropriate moments but I mostly just tried to report on the behavior rather than create a narrative you know about it 
Well, when people were behaving badly, the evidence was so abundant that it's very easy for the readers to make their own judgments. And that, I think, is actually one of the pleasures of reading the book, right? Like, I, as a reader, got to be super judgy. And I'm sorry to say that I I really am, apparently, as a reader, really enjoy the heck out of that. Um, You know, and... I think speaking of expansiveness, I mean, one of the things that the book does in each section is that we get the romantic history of not only the particular marriage, but of what preceded and succeeded it. So, for example, we learn, you know, I became like really entranced with that. I was like, oh, Patricia Neal and Gary Cooper. Like, I am rooting for them and yet also rooting for Gary Cooper's wife, Rocky. And, you know, I was like, who who is even so there's. There's all of this context for, in this case, for example, like why would Patricia Neal have been drawn to Roald Dahl? Um, and like, and then you you articulate that so beautifully, like, you know, maybe not so much drawn towards him as away from her pain, I think is, is what you write. And so we get the like larger notion of them as people operating in a romantic context. What kinds of people are they with different partners? And then all of a sudden we get this zoom in on the marriage. So... Um, I will say as someone who's been a lifelong fan of Roald Dahl, I learned how to pronounce his name from your book. Um, and I was especially interested to read about Patricia Neal and Roald Dahl, um, who is absolutely one of my favorite writers who I'm fully aware was a completely lousy person. And Patricia Neal stands out in this book also because you spoke to her and you actually asked her about her marriage, but it was well before you began this book. So I wonder if just for our listeners to get a taste of this book, if you could read to us from the section about Patricia and Rule. Sure, sure, I'd be happy to. Um, yeah, and that was, you know, I, I think uh, just going back to what you said a moment ago, you know, there, there was something really great about her, her love of Gary Cooper and his for, for her. But, you know, when he leaves, when he's sitting in the car while she go gets a, an abortion, it's just like so heartbreaking and, then she knew she had to kind of move on and Roald Dahl represented safety. You know, he was very charismatic and intelligent. So it's easy to, easy to see why she may have been drawn to him. Um, okay. So I'll just uh, read a bit of the book. Um, this is kind of uh, early on, um, early on in their relationship. As the two spent more time together, things were going well in their work lives with Patricia immersed in the children's hour and looking forward to doing off-Broadway productions of The Scarecrow in School for Scandal, while Ruled had drawn the interest of Alfred Knopf, who read one of his stories in The New Yorker and signed him up for a book of stories called Someone Like You, which was published to positive reviews in the fall of 1953. Patricia had already declined a casual proposal of marriage, but even if Ruled was not earning much money and what she felt for him was not exactly love, quote, the complex Ruled doll was growing on her. His intelligence and dependability made him very attractive, she recalled. This is in her memoir. He was not the kind to stand me up. He had a charming and elegant side that I found captivating and an absoluteness of judgment that was fascinating as it was at times frightening. There was something very freeing about feeling someone strong at my side. Although I did not love him, I admired him deeply. And at that time in my life, admiration was more important than love. On June 16, 1953, Luella Parsons reported in her gossip column that Patricia Neal was, quote, a very happy girl these days with her constant escort, Ronald Dahl. <laughs> she got his name wrong. He's with Pat everywhere, Parsons wrote, and she's again sparkling as she did when she first came to Hollywood. They would marry in less than a month. On May 23, 1953, Roald had written to his mother about the upcoming wedding. She insists on the church, so if I can find one small enough and far away from the far enough away from the reporters, et cetera, it'll be okay with me, 
Charles, who is a patron of his, has insisted on donating a huge yellow sapphire ring, about 20 carats, which is very decent of him. Three days later, he wrote to Patricia's mother, Dear Mrs. Neal, I know Pat has told you that she and I are now hoping to get married sometime around the end of June before we go to Europe, but I wanted to write to you and let you know how happy we are about it and how fortunate I think I am to be getting such a fine girl. It's going to be a bit strange to have a wife who earns more money than me, but that really isn't a problem, and I'm confident that I'll always be able to support her myself with my own work, whether she earns anything or not. After we return from Europe and she goes on the road with the play, the touring production of the Children's Hour, I'll be looking around for a slightly cheaper but larger apartment, and I hope you'll come visit us often. Mentioning again his desire to evade the press photographers for the wedding, he added, maybe we could manage to be a bit secret about it when the time comes and just go somewhere quietly with four or five friends. He ended the letter, all my sisters, four of them, and my brother have been happily married for a long time now, so I hope I can manage things as successfully as they have. Pat seems happy and excited, and I certainly am. She was neither happy nor excited and knew her fiance, quote, was not everyone's cup of tea. But Patricia was ready for marriage, and she adored children, as did Roll. Dashiell Hammett, who had become a good friend, <clears throat> was the first in line of noteworthy prophets of doom where our forthcoming marriage was concerned, she recalled. The men argued one night at Hellman's and had not spoken since. Don't marry him, Patsy. He's a horror, Hammett warned. Warned. I can't understand why you're doing this. Leonard Bernstein took her aside one evening at Lillian Hellman's and whispered in her ear, I really think you're making the biggest mistake of your life. She noticed that Rule was often rude, argumentative, and arrogant, perhaps a defensive response from insecurity over never having gone to university. At the dinner table, he was a master of one up upmanship and condescension, and armed with a vicious misogynist streak, he took pleasure in telling highly inappropriate stories to shock female guests. Even in the early days of their relationship, Patricia knew that her future husband, quote, seemed to feel he had the right to be awful and no one should dare counter him. Few did. That's it. Thank you. Um, I, mean, I feel like the passage gets it so much in the book, the tension of when a wife in question has an artistic life and a bank account of her own. The writer's often volatile tempers, the bigotry, the entitlements, you know. But people are still interested in this question about how literary... Uh, uh, couples work. I was thinking about like Joan Didion wrote a very famous memoir about her husband. Joyce Carol Oates, who was my professor, wrote about Raymond Smith, who was her first husband who died and how important he was to her and their relationship. He was very supportive. Um, there's Meg Woolitcher's novel, The Wife, was about a wife of a famous writer reasserting her role in his success. That was made into a movie in 2017 starring Glenn Close and Jonathan Price. What do you think these sorts of power imbalances, do these, do you think these sorts of power imbalances continue uh, to the, to present an issue today. And, you know, what, do, what are the marriages in your book tell us about currently the way literary marriages work? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's hard to make a kind of grander overarching statement, but I think, um, what I see anecdotally is that the, this does still go on in relationships where both people are writers. Uh, it's very hard or where one person is a writer or artist and the other isn't, you know, I've known people who are kind of, you know, women who are in the role of the wife and mostly it's okay, but sometimes they feel a lot of rage and resentment. And, you know, when can I go back and get, you know, 
get to my career. And, you know, if we think about the news, it, it is still playing out. If you think of Giselle and Tom Brady, who I, I only know what was reported, but apparently that she got so fed up and frustrated with his coming, you know, uh, out of retirement and back to work. And now she's supposedly thriving in her modeling career again, you know, so it's, I don't know. I, I don't know what to make of it, but it just, it is. Even Giselle can't get any respect. Exactly. And, and, you know, even, you know, reading, just reading about the expectations of the public on famous women. Like I, I am even thinking of someone like Taylor Swift, who is like, you know, everyone always wants to know who I'm dating and no one wants to talk about my, you know, my writing songwriting as a craft or my singing or how hard I work. It's all about like who I'm dating. And, and I've, I've noticed just in interviews that I read with, with men who are writers, they're not often asking about or mentioning the spouse, but with, writers who are women, they ask, well, do you have children and how do you do it all? How do you balance it? So there's just like gendered questions around, around that. But, um, you know, maybe we could say if we had to speculate that things have gotten a bit better, uh, just because of, you know, the way that work is now. Um, but I think it's still often harder to, to claim space for creativity without apology for the wives versus the husbands. But, I, I don't know. There are some relationships out there that really work where both people are helping with childcare and, and so forth. But I think um, I hope the book will spark lots of conversations about how it's relevant today and what that means. The one phenomenon that I s still see that is touched on your book at times is, is what I would call the trade up where like the, the one the, uh, the writer has a spouse and I can think of more men who did this than women, but it also has happened with women that I know. Um, and that spouse is extremely supportive when they're unpublished and working very hard and in graduate school and everything sucks. And then they make it and suddenly new spouse with more, you know, who's more famous, who is whatever, you know. And so and that that person who did all the work at the beginning gets shuttered, shut out. I'm sure you can think of examples of that. Yeah, I'm sure we all can that we can't talk about but we know of right <laughs> about to say names Whitney names, names, names. <laughs> um, I'm sorry but... uh Carmela has set the precedent that we're not going to speak ill of the living so I'm not going to do that we'll be respectful of the living but um no I mean do how do you all uh if you want to talk about it how do you all balance writing is it just like short spurts and then you have to deal with the other parts of your life like do you, or, or are you able to take long stretches for yourselves Whitney? Oh, well, you want me? I mean, I've been married for quite some time. Uh, and my wife is an academic, Gail Levy. She's a French professor. She teaches at the same university that I do. But when we met, actually, she was like tenured and I was not. Um, so, I mean, we have a, you know, we she has, my son is at a soccer game right now that she's taking him to because I need to do this interview. But sometimes I would, I normally am the person who does actually the soccer driving we both cook, although she cooks a lot more than I do. Um, I do my laundry, but she does her laundry and the kids' laundry. So, I mean, we try to divide things up, but I think that she she still has, I would say, some of the more traditional, she has taken on some of the more traditional exact roles that you talk about. And I know that she does not like having to cook all the time and yet does it. And we talk about that. Um, so, you know, I, I'm still participating in some of that entitlement and freedom right we both work during the day here and the kids are at school and so we just do it you know um the weekends are a little more complicated
Um, and my husband, I guess we've been together for a while, but I got married in June. Um, and I think like, I mean, this is even interesting. Um, Whitney on the show has tried to get me to talk about myself more and like a woman in public, I am sometimes like both. I should not talk about myself. And also I'm an extraordinarily, <laughs> some people might characterize me as extraordinarily paranoid. It's slash private. Um, and I think, um, so it takes me a little bit to even kind of talk about it, but, um, I have two step kids and I think like some of the dynamic is different because I'm a step parent, um, which I think Ann Patchett actually might be as well. Um, um, and so there's like some difference there. And then I also have like, I, I don't think my stepkids like my food, but my food is spicy. Um, and so there's some, you know, like my husband is better at cooking things that they, that they're more likely to be able to eat. Um, although as they get older, they're becoming more adventurous. I also have a motor disability. So there are sometimes, especially in recent years, moments where he's definitely doing more than his share because I physically am not able to do things that I was doing, like certain amounts of laundry or like cooking for me is basically, even when the kids are not here, basically gone. But um, there are things that I think, you know, I am aware that as a woman, I'm judged on my domestic space in a different way, which isn't necessarily of his, that's not his doing necessarily, it's just the way that society works. Um, and I also come from a history of like, women who took a lot of pride in how they kept their homes. And so I have inherited stuff around that. But we, yeah, you know, I think um, as people married to academics, right, that means that we're married to writers. Um, Wood and I are both married to writers. And so I think one thing that's nice is if you don't all finish your books at the same time, and we didn't intentionally stagger stuff, but we didn't finish our books at the same time. I can imagine that if we were trying to, um, that would be really challenging. And so I think we do try to like sometimes think about how might those things get spaced out? Um, like if I have to turn in X on X date, like when do you have to turn this? Or like if we see things colliding, like see that on the calendar in advance and try and like get ahead of it a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think again, like a lot of our questions are complicated by these other things, including like, like my husband is definitely the one doing the driving, um, which I think is a huge amount of labor, especially in the snowy Midwest. That is also my job. That's a big job. <laughs> That's a big job. Yeah. And as we know, um, you know, in the pandemic, everything was so destabilizing and continues to be in some ways. And so I think all these roles got even messier, but it does seem to be helpful for a lot of people to be married to or be with writers because you do understand how crazy making it can be and how you know frustrated you get in your work. And it, it helps, yeah, for someone to to get that. And I think for, so, you know, it does have benefits, even though in my, as in my book, it, you know, it's, it can be very painful at times, but, um, you know, I, as I'm sure you both know too, like if you're, if you're interrupted, um, I think I read, it takes about 30 minutes to get back to a state of flow. So it helps if you're with a writer who knows that, you know, you need that uninterrupted right. time as much as you can claim it. Cause it, it really messes you up if you don't get it. That's a great example because like here in our house, like there is one office and I have it. Um, and he's got it. He's got an office that's kind of in a common space. And so he doesn't have the kind of privacy and shelter that I do. We both have offices, but I would say that, um, you know, the other thing that I think hasn't, we haven't talked about a lot here, but it's mentioned in your book is like, Gail's a very important reader for me as somebody who I trust and who's close to me and who 
will say yes and will read something um, if I ask. And she also is good at copy editing, which I'm not. So that's always helpful. I make her, I ask her to read like any formal letter that I have to send to make sure I don't spell something wrong. You know, it's just helpful. Yeah, that's really great. And I, I love the, uh, the Stephen King quote that I, I mentioned in my introduction where he talks about his wife as someone who is really someone he relies on, who doesn't take any crap from him and who's such a solid person. And they've been together for so long and he clearly has such respect and admiration for her. So I, I love seeing that the things, you know, stories like that. I think they're really inspiring. Um, well, I certainly feel that way about Gail. So I will say that. And Sugi's now going to say that she feels the same way about I her partner. I feel the same way about <laughs> Travis. Um, and we should end on this happy note, on this happy note, because there's so much, this is a, this is a good arc. Um, so Carmela, I just want to thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed your book. And listeners, don't miss The Lives of the Wives, which is out February 7th. Thank you so much. This was such a fun and great conversation. I really appreciate it. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading! <laughs>